Hello, and welcome to this edition of People in Transition. I'm your host, Bob Durst. I've been hiring, firing, and mentoring executives, frontline employees, interns, and job seekers in companies around the world through a host of transitions, some difficult, but most very good. I work with people in Hong Kong, India, Australia, and across the United States. What sets them apart? A lot, but there's more they have in common. And one of those commonalities is transition is a part of life. This experience has given me a bird's eye view on a variety of trends, economies, industry disruptors, and transitions that are big and small. It also brought me into contact with the thought leaders and decision makers you need to meet. The people who can make the difference that matters to you right now. Imagine knowing exactly what to do next and how to know it's time to make your big change. The inside track you're going to access during our future episodes is better than a crystal ball. It's the exact information you need to take that next step. Whether you're a new grad applying for your first professional job, someone looking to transition your work experience into a promotion, launching your own company, or maybe even starting to plan your retirement, you're in transition, and this series is for you. We all know transition can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. And it's even fun when you have VIP access to the future you want. Are you tired of the uncertainty of being passed up? We'll share with you the tools and skills that can take your dreams to the front of the line. So if change is on your horizon, or maybe just the thought of change, you won't want to miss this discussion. It could be the exact edge you need to turn transition into an amazing opportunity. Rupert French, I am so pleased that we have the opportunity to talk today. Since we did our first get together, you know, I just knew that today was going to be something interesting and magical. So I was looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Bob. I've been looking forward to it greatly too. And um, I'm looking forward to our chat. Rupert, if you think back when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, believe it or not, I wanted to be a sailor, whether a, a probably a merchant seaman working on ships. It never happened, but I still sail. And Rupert, what have been the transition moments that you've gone through in your life, taking you from that young child in your mind's eye wanting to be a sailor to what you're at today? Oh, many and varied. I started off in the British Army and I was seven years in the British Army. And then I transitioned to journalism and became a, a journalist working for UPI in Paris. And journalism brought me to Sydney and I had a very good job with the Sydney Morning Herald, which I started on the second day I was in Australia. So I knew absolutely nobody. And to advance my uh, career, I then went to university as an old age candidate. I dropped out of school at year 10 and went to university and came away with not only a degree, but a wife. I've still got the wife. I think the silverfish might have eaten most of the degree. <laughs> And having left, left university, I went into teaching and I was a teacher for 15 years in a country high school in Tasmania. And what got me through those transitions was confidence. And believe it or not, once I finished teaching, I took a redundancy from teaching and I'd spent 
10 years, almost 10 years, supporting unemployed youth and disadvantaged unemployed people generally of all ages. I then uh, lost my confidence and I found I couldn't get another job. So I did another postgraduate degree at, to set up a business as a job search coach. But of course, as a job search coach, I had to start from scratch. I was really learning by the seat of my pants. That's taken me to here, uh, where I think that I'm now, I've got a message to help people make that transition to finding that job. It's a bit like training pilots. You can train them to where they want to fly to and how to get there. Unless you teach them how to take off, they're never going to move. They're never going to leave the ground. And I sort of see job search as the training for takeoff. Rupert, when we've talked before, you've talked about someone who is in a job search that they need to establish a you and company. Tell me what that's all about and what that means. Well, that is about, a lot of it's about confidence because unless you've got confidence in yourself, you can't convince an employer to have confidence in you. So it's very difficult to be confident unless you've got some measure of control over the situation. And with conventional job search, you're, you're not, you're reactive, you're not in control. You scroll through the job boards, you find a job that you think you could do and you send off an application for it, but you're just being reactive. You're just following a process. If you think of yourself as the CEO of you and co, You think, right, I'm going to be proactive. What is the job I want to do? And you set your sights on a specific job and you define that job as accurately as you can. Where do I want to do this? Who do I want to work with? And you set your sights on two possible employers. And then you really are in control. Why one job and two employers? Basically because you're using small business marketing strategies to find that job. Uh, Small business don't wait for clients to advertise that they need their services. They go out and find them. And that's exactly what you've got to do in the job search. So Rupert, your book that you have talks about how to get a good job after you're 50. And you talk about the concerns that employers have regarding older applicants. Can you talk to that just a little bit for us? Yes, certainly. I'll say that some of the concerns, I wouldn't like to say that I've got them all, is that uh, older applicants are just biding time until retirement and they won't stay with the firm long. And yet it's proven that generally they stay much longer than younger workers because they're not looking for greener grass the other side of the hill. Employers can think that older workers will have health problems and yet its surveys have shown that they actually take less sick days than younger workers. Another concern is that they lack energy and stamina. And yet, again, more research has shown that they're more productive, have a better work ethic, and they're more reliable than uh, younger workers. Unwilling to adapt to new ways and not up to date with technology is another concern. And that has been proven to be not accurate. And then the final concern I've got here is they don't work well with a younger supervisor. Well, again, research has shown that they often act as mentors to younger colleagues and can also act as mentors and advisors to their supervisors if the younger supervisors are willing to accept that advice. And a survey some years ago now of 500 hiring managers found that actually 60% 
prefer to hire someone over 50 rather than someone under 30. However, as you say, discrimination still exists and as I said before, the best way around it is to make yourself known before your application hits the desk. Make yourself known within the company before the, your application arrives. Rupert, you've talked about creating a portfolio career. What does that mean and how do I get that portfolio career? I've got in mind people who are probably in their 60s rather than their 50s who are looking for perhaps trading down, quietening down. The gig economy, part-time work, casual work, contracts can provide a variety of positions and the flexibility that maybe they need. It can be very satisfying. It means that they can take their holidays, go overseas. It also means that they've got a, a more secure income source because it's coming from several sources. And if one job ends, they've got another job that tied them over until they get a, a second part-time or casual job. And Rupert, you as well have talked about in your job search that you should write your job search mission statement. What's that all about? Right. This is Stephen Covey, only translated to the job search. A job search mission statement can really help speed up your job search simply because it keeps you focused on that one job. It keeps you job that you decided that's what you want to get. It keeps you focused on that so that you do actually spend all your energies chasing after that one job. Your mission statement should have four components to it. The sort of job you want, as specifically written down and defined as possible. Where you want to do it, i.e. the organizations you want to work for, those two organizations. Why you want to do it, the why being the motivation behind it. Why is this job important to you? And finally, the date by which you want to start. And I normally suggest a Wednesday in six weeks time. Obviously, it doesn't always happen that way. But unless you've, if you've got it written down, that's what you're working for. If you find that, okay, it's not going to be possible with a, that the two organizations you've chosen, well, rewrite it to include a third organization or a fourth organization, whatever you need. If you miss the date in six weeks time, rewrite it so as to put in another date that is more realistic. But six weeks actually has proved to be, at least it certainly has in Australia, to be a very reasonable length of time. I've run workshops for disadvantaged job seekers, actually mostly older people, and many of them using this process were getting jobs within three weeks. So six weeks is fine. Oh, mind you, I did have one that did everything right, took him eight months. Okay, it can vary, but set the target for six weeks because that gives you a the light at the end of the tunnel. It also gives you a date for you can work back from. Okay, if I'm going to be starting there in six weeks' time, what do I have to do in the final week? What do I have to do in week four? And that sort of thing. I heard of someone, Rupert, that sent out hundreds of resumes and got no traction on it, no interviews, no feedback. What would you say to that person that they must be doing something wrong? First thing I would say that they're doing, they wrote, sent out 99 resumes too many. They're 
using the shotgun approach. They're sending out resumes to every possible job. If they focus on one job with two organizations, and if they're working on the job search full time, they can spend 20 hours a week on each application. And the candidate who gets the job is generally the one who puts in the best overall application performance. That is, yes, sure, the resume, the interview, the research, and the making themselves known, the networking. If you're putting 20 hours a week into that, and someone else is only putting two hours a week because they're scattering for 20 jobs, obviously your application is going to be better than theirs. So I really tell people to quieten it down. The resume itself needs to be a value proposition. This is, I, I think I, in the book, I call it a business proposal, but a value proposition is the same. Same meaning. I've just changed my terminology since I wrote the book. You're telling the employer how you want to benefit their organization, telling them what you want to do for them. And that requires research, requires making sure you know exactly what their needs are. And that gives you such a much better way of getting a job. The employer is not interested in you or your history at all. The employer is interested in how you're going to benefit the organization. Rupert, let's compare and contrast the resume that you've described as the business proposal with the cover letter. Number one, should I use a cover letter? And number two, how do you compare and contrast and make those two documents work together to be more effective for you? Right. Well, firstly, the cover letter is still part of the value proposition, and that needs to be always remembered. In the past, only a few years ago, you'd see that cover letters were considered virtually unimportant. And I think it was 50% of uh, employers were saying that they never look at them. Well, that's not true today because now they're virtually essential. I've seen ads saying an application submitted without a cover letter will not be considered. So it's very important. The cover letter being less structured than the uh, the resume provides an excellent opportunity to more effectively market your services and show how you your services can help the new job. Both the resume and the cover letter should be filled with achievement statements, or I think North America use the term accomplishment statements. That really helps. The other thing is that the cover letter gives the chance for putting in a call to action. And a call to action, it's used by small business because it's very effective. I read a statistic, and I'm, I'm never sure quite how, to, how much credence to put into statistics, but this statistic said it increased conversions by 83%. Right, I'll leave that, <laughs> leave you to decide whether that's accurate or not. But if you put in a call to action, and I've found that you can put in about three calls to action in a cover letter effectively. The first one is in the subject line. If you're applying for a job as an environmental engineer, in the subject line of your cover letter, instead of having just environmental engineer, you have request for interview, environmental engineer. So that's a call to action straight away. In the first paragraph, which is normally a fairly general paragraph, showing how you meet the requirements for the position, how you want to benefit the organization, you can end that with a sentence like, if you think that I might be the sort of person you're after, give me a call. We can discuss how I could benefit the business. That first paragraph is followed by a few paragraphs that really get down to 
action. They're filled with accomplishment statements or achievement statements. And then you have the final paragraph. And again, at the end of the final paragraph, you can have another call to action saying, this is the sort of person you want. Give me a call so that we can meet and discuss how I could resolve your problems. And also in the cover letter, I also say, don't end it with yours sincerely, because that's so boring. End it with something like, with enthusiasm, and then sign your name. Rupert, you talk about your billboard in the cloud. Now, that's going to grab you for sure. So what are you talking about there, and how does that relate to your whole personal branding in your job search? It's very, very important, Bob. Your social media presence is shown by posts and comments on LinkedIn and Twitter and other relevant social media. It's the way to get yourself known within the organization before your application hits the desk. If you find out in your research, you get the names of three or four people within your target organizations and you find them on LinkedIn, follow them. If you find them on their Twitter account, follow them on Twitter. And then when you have a chance, put a like or something to their posts or even a comment, especially a positive comment, because they will respond to a positive comment. So they've responded to you and that's making yourself known. That's, if you like, the flashing lights on the billboard. With luck, you'll be able to connect with those people eventually by email and you can really start building a rapport that way. Then perhaps you can get to a face-to-face meeting. Well, Once you've got your face-to-face meeting, you're basically just about in. You've got a really good chance of getting that job. Let's spend some time talking about network interviewing. And you talk about the four I words for successful network interviewing. Can you describe that to us? Yes, certainly. The four I words are introduction or referral, information, interest, and integrity. Now, if we use the billboard in the cloud uh, approach, the introduction is not so not so important because you're being proactive in introducing yourself to those people that you are following on LinkedIn or Twitter or other social media. But if you're going in cold, you're much more likely to be um, given credibility if you say, that a mutual acquaintance, so-and-so, suggested I call you, then they respect, they know and like and respect the so-and-so that you mentioned, and so they're likely to take you on and accept you. Information, you find out everything you can about the organization. You do your research thoroughly so that you don't waste their time by asking questions that you could have found the answer out before. Interest, If you're interested in them, genuinely interested in the organization they represent, then they'll be interested in you. And finally, integrity. You asked for 20 minutes, don't go over 20 minutes. You said that you're not asking for a job, so don't ask them for a job. Let them offer you a job if they they think you're right, but you don't ask for a job. Integrity is terribly important. Rupert, we've talked before about interview preparations and what I can do as the applicant to get ready and be most impactful in the interviews. What are those five areas that you recommend that a job candidate focus in on? Right. The the first one is research. You research the organization until you can start planning 
your first few weeks in the job there. That way you've got a really good grip on it and you're going to answer questions almost as if you're in the job itself, which makes it much easier. Also, of course, you can envisage yourself in the job so you're much more confident. You're preparing questions to ask based on your research. This is important. You prepare the questions you want to ask first before you prepare answers to possible interview questions. And the reason I say that is if you leave preparing your questions until after you've prepared the answers to their questions, there's a risk that you won't come back to asking those questions anyway. So prepare half a dozen questions. You may not get to ask them all, but you may, which are for two purposes only, to confirm or correct your picture of the job and the organisation, and secondly, to find out how best you can help them. So no questions on when can I take my holidays or how much pay will you give me or things like that. These are marketing questions. You're doing your pitch uh, for the position at the interview, and so you need to be selling to them. Then indeed, prepare answers to likely interview questions. You can work out what the questions are likely to be because they'll be based on the selection criteria. And whether the selection criteria are written or not, you can work out what they are by um, your knowledge of the job and what what it entails. And by the way, at least 50% of all answers should consist of achievement statements, accomplishment statements, because that's what they're interested in. Then the two things left are reconnaissance. If you're being interviewed by Skype or a video interview, then make sure that you've got the technology working. But if you're being interviewed face-to-face, make sure you know where the place is. Make sure you know how long it's going to take you to get there. You may think this is using a sledgehammer to crack a nut, but actually if you've done the journey, found out exactly how to get there, you'll be feel a lot more confident when you're going to the interview, which is great. And the last part is to psych yourself for success. You've got to have that confidence. You've got to be build up that confidence as high as you can. I, I found that when I was going for those transitions that we meant, talked about earlier, when I was confident, I got the jobs, whether I knew what I was doing or not. When I lost my confidence, I didn't get a job. So that confidence is so essential. And Rupert, how do you stay positive during that time that can be very stressful and You get a lot of rejections and sometimes it's not very fun. Well, you're right. It's not very fun. And I've got 10 things in the book and there's one that perhaps I didn't mention enough, but I'm going to put that up first. And that is to engage a support group right from the very beginning. It could be two or three or four or five people that you know and trust and who want to see you succeed. And in the book, I call them the board, your board, your advisory board. They're not a board of directors because it's you that makes all the decisions. You're responsible for that. But they are a support and you don't see them together. You see them in ones and twos. Have a coffee with them. Look, I'm going, I'm going to an interview tomorrow. Can you um, help me with this or can you advise me about that? So that probably the most important is to have that support group. Now, envisage success. Do your research really thoroughly. You should be able to see yourself in the job. If you've got that plan for your first few weeks in the job, you should be able to see yourself in that job. And that makes it much easier for you to build your confidence. Rupert, are there any books 
or other resources that you would recommend someone who is in a job transition that they should read? Well, I suppose I wrote How to Get a Good Job After 50 because I wasn't happy with the books that were out there. I didn't think that they were helpful enough or I didn't think they covered it in enough detail. There were always things that just weren't quite right. Uh, a lot of them weren't holistic. They'd talk about resumes, but they'd talk about resumes in isolation from everything else. And that's wrong. So, so I wrote this book to try and give a holistic, proactive job search method. But of course, I've read a lot of books on the way, including Stephen Covey. And I've, I've read a lot of useful books. One I re read was the Guerrilla Marketing for Job Seekers 2.0 which I thought, yes, that's, that's, does go, that goes a long way. However, I still stick with my, my book as how to get a good job after 50 as what I wanted to say and what I think needs to be said. Rupert, if our listeners remember only three things from today's discussion, what are those three things that you want them to take away? Well, I suppose first must be take control of the job search. You are the boss. It's your career you drive it. Taking control means being proactive. Secondly, select one job that you want to work on, just one, and two possible employers, prospective employers, because that way you can put a lot of effort into each of those applications. And it's the best application that normally gets the job. Not necessarily the most qualified person, but the best application. And third, get satisfaction from doing the job search. Try and see yourself as someone who is challenged, going through a challenging time, but you're up to it and you've got your support group and you've got your confidence and get enjoyment from it. I think those are my three things. Rupert, when we first started talking, I knew that today was going to be a day filled with information, with wisdom, with experience, and some humor as well. I want to thank you on behalf of my listeners for sharing your thoughts and being a part of their job transition. Thank you, Rupert, so much. Thank you, Bob. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We're working in unprecedented times as the world responds to the recent COVID-19 crisis. The fact is that even those who are not in transition understand it could be right around the corner, next month or a year from now. The purpose of these episodes are to give listeners support and the critical tools to adjust with the winds, wherever they come. I'll continue to introduce you to guests who have successfully, perhaps gracefully, or without too many battle scars, survive their own obstacle courses, and can share useful information on how to steady your ship or your world in this uncertainty. If today's message was helpful to you, please share it on social media. If you have any questions or podcast ideas for future conversations, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I appreciate your time, your investing in sharing these important conversations with me, my guests, and others who are going through life transition. Transitions between jobs, life stages, new entrepreneurial ventures, or whatever life brings. Change is constant. The more prepared you are for it, the better and easier the change will occur. Thank you again. This is your host, Bob Gerst. See you at our next episode of People in Transition.